He-Man. Welcome back to another episode of Pop and Play. In this episode, we dive deep into childhood nostalgia with the watch of Netflix's Masters of the Universe revelation. Spoiler alert, we are about to reveal a major spoiler from the first episode of the new series. So, listen if you dare. Now that you've been warned, here goes. In this He-Man sequel, He-Man dies in the first episode. The show then continues following alternate characters as they try to pick up the pieces of their lives after the loss of their hero. In true pop and play form, we don't really talk too much about the actual episode, but it becomes a starting point to talk about gender, superheroes, and representation. We brought in our friend Ann Haas Dyson, professor of educational policy, organization, and leadership at the University of Illinois. Her work is on childhoods, literacy, and incidentally, the intersection of popular culture in the lives of young people. So Nathan's gonna start our discussion about what he thought about the He-Man episode. I thoroughly enjoyed the the episode itself. I thoroughly enjoyed the season. I'm kind of curious though, you know, for you, Haney, did you watch a lot of He-Man whenever you were younger in, in the in the 80s? Uh, did you, you know, watch She-Ra as a kid? And then what are your thoughts on this this new sort of sequel? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> if I was born in the 80s, just kidding, I was. Oh, uh, <laughs> ouch. That, that kind of stung, actually. <laughs> I, wish, I wish I wasn't. Um, so I actually do remember watching He-Man. I do remember watching She-Ra because my brother is maybe three years younger than I am. And there was like very few overlap as to when we can actually agree on whatever we were going to, going to watch because I do remember like remote control fighting being like a very, very big thing because we just have very opposite interests at some point. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, did you watch, do you have salient memories of it? Because I'm wondering like, who does it bring you back to? Like what, when, where, like where does all this happen in your life? Yeah, so for me, I definitely do have very salient memories. My memories though are mostly of the toys um, you know, action figure, He-Man action figures that I played with all the time. You know, that was, mm-hmm. some people had sort of the G.I. Joe, some people had the Transformers, I had I had the He-Man figurines. So, so for me, um, the toys and all the different, you know, the castle, I had the castle Grayskull, and I had, you know, I don't really think I had any of the vehicles, but, you know, I remember them, there being vehicles and things. And so that was kind of the, the real hook for me for, watching the show as well. The, the interesting, one of the interesting things about He-Man is it came about in this time where instead of there being like a movie or a show or something and then people making toys from those, it was reversed. They actually made the toys and they were like, oh, mm-hmm. we need some sort of show around this. And so they designed a show and some con- like little you know built-in comics that would come when you would buy the toy. They made all of those things from the toys, so the toys actually came first, and it was all entirely about trying to sell toys. <laughs> it was, you know, it wasn't like we need something to make extra money off this show we've made. It was the other way around. So I was thinking about like as I was watching it, the one thing that I could that was so obvious to me is how they overcorrect for gender, right? That they are much more salient about representation. That they kind of create Tila to be like this. Um, anti-feminine person, right? And all of that is like super obvious. 
And I'm wondering, um, and what, and I connected that with like my, the research that I've done with kids is that I think, so I have this story about like, I was in a kindergarten classroom and I think we were really worried about gender um, because the children, the kids were having such weird discussions about gender, not weird, but ones that we didn't want them to have, right? Because we're like, no, girls don't always have to be princesses. You don't have to do this, da, 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 you know? And I think we like try to do the opposite of it. And so there was like this one day where we had like this dress up center and the dress up center basically had like only costumes that her sons like had growing up, you know? So they were all like quote boy costumes, right? Like Buzz Lightyear, like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle masks, like capes and like swords and things like that. And it was still fun. Like all the kids wanted to be in that center or that area. And so one day we're like, no, let's just do like the complete opposite and only put like feminine stuff in there so that everybody has to play with the feminine stuff, (laughs) right? So we put like scarves and like butterfly wings and like tiaras and like little whatever, you know? And it was just interesting because I think the assumption is that if we just show them something different and force them to engage in a different way, that they're going to respond differently, that that in itself Mm. is going to change things, right? And I feel like that happens with pop culture and TV for young kids is that if we like overcorrect for all of these things, show them and force them to understand these lessons, right? That (laughs) it's going to shift that or change that. And it's interesting because you were like, I actually don't remember a lot of the content of what I saw on those shows. I was just playing out the typical tropes, right? Like, yeah, you know, fighting each other, putting each other in a triangle choke or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Well, I so <clears throat> before I answer, I'm kind of curious, like, did that, did you, so you, you mentioned that, you know, it was pretty apparent to you that they were trying to kind of um, be a little more representative, you know, especially with gender. And did, mm-hmm. did that annoy you that it was so kind of, plain or or uh a little bit yeah i mean i will admit that there are some shows that i stopped watching because i was like so sick of it trying to teach me a lesson (laughs) (laughs) like very overtly like even as an like as an adult i was like i don't need to learn a lesson from watching this show (laughs) i can learn those lessons myself and i probably won't rely on a television show to do that for me right sometimes actually take that back sometimes i do but i don't like those explicit overt messages. So as we said before, we have He-Man and we also had She-Ra, right? And like those shows, I mean, the, the show is, the character's called He-Man, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, and he's and this... And the guy's name is Adam. That's true. His name is <laughs> Adam, right? And and he's like this like huge hulking white dude that just runs around in a loincloth. Frequently uh-huh. is like, his, his sort of, his sort of like frequent battle uh, technique is to Pick up something and th- massive and throw it at people or punch uh-huh. things. He does a lot of punching. Um, there's actually a little line in, in the episode that we watch where I think Skeletor says, "Oh, you finally used that sword like you're supposed to." When he because <laughs> He Man like stabs right, and because because at no point in the old show did He Man ever like stab anything or even cut uh-huh. anything with his sword. He was always punching things or or throwing things. So it's very like you know, ultra-masculine m- kind of uh, mm-hmm. idea. <clears throat> and then, of course, She-Ra, and the whole premise behind She-Ra was, remember, this is a toy company doing all this, was like, how can we sell more toys? Oh, I know, yeah. let's sell them to girls. And so She-Ra, the whole premise of She-Ra was to be like, 
extremely feminine. So, so, so there's always been to to me this kind of problematic relationship I have with, it. well, a, 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 a awkward relationship I have with the show because of its problematic treatment of gender, um, mm. in you know in those days. Um, this is not meant to be a uh, too far of an aside here, but so the the, the Shira rebooted a few years ago. Did, have we? Have you seen the She-Ra reboot at all? No, you've <coughs> talked about it a little bit though. Okay, yeah. So, so She-Ra rebooted a few years ago, and it's really good. Um, I've seen a couple seasons of it. My kids and I watched some, and they liked it as well. And one of the things that they did with this reboot is is um, She-Ra had kind of developed this kind of cult uh, um, uh, sort of following around from from the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. And when they did the reboot. For Shira, they like fully leaned into this, and so the the show is really kind of takes on really interesting you know issues of femininity. They they tackle um, LGBTQ topics, but they do it in these in these kind of you know reasonable ways. They don't like you know mm-hmm. they don't like throw up these particular mm-hmm. topics. They look at this; these people are you know this is a queer person or anything like that. They just mm-hmm. kind of like have lots of different types of people represented. They have all these different body types represented, all these different sort of ethnicities represented, and then they do interesting things with them and like take mm-hmm. on talk, talk about interesting values and, and topics. And so I thought it was a pretty interesting and, and kind of cool show, and taking something from my childhood and and updating it to a more kind of modern sensibility and 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 then doing fun things with it. And so when I heard about He-Man, my first thought was, well, if they do something like that, I, I you know I could be interested in it. If it's just a big hulking white dude like throwing rocks, mm-hmm. <laughs> then maybe maybe I'm not super interested in it. So I was actually um, really happy to see that they did kind of play around with what the show is about. I'm, I mean, they still have big hulking dudes destroying things. I don't know if you remember, but in the very first episode, Man-at-Arms punches mm-hmm. a mechanical horse in the face. <laughs> right? Like, that's, that's there's still that awesome, <laughs> ridiculous uh-huh. um, action in it. But then, uh, you know, as we said earlier, the, then they, you know, the, the episodes quickly shift into, like, let's talk about some different characters. Let's kind of explore their motivations. Let's explore kind of what issues they might be going through. There's an episode later where Evil Inn, you know, is, is kind of reflective about the fact that, like, she's been a sidekick to this this idiot, you know, villain all this mm-hmm. time, and she actually is smarter than him. Why isn't she in charge, you know? And th- those are the kinds of things that I thought they're a little, perhaps they're a little... Um, more explicit than they need to be, but I kind of appreciated that, you know. Yeah. I, 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 so I liked it. It didn't bother me that it that it was clear that they were sort of shuffling some things up for for perhaps you know more a more progressive sensibility. It didn't really bother me. And it does remind me though of um, going back to that example in that classroom. Is that as soon as we put the feminine stuff in there, there was most definitely a wedding happening at some point. There was going to be wedding, a wedding, and someone was going shopping, okay? And then when we had the other stuff, like Buzz Lightyear and Ninja Turtles and all of that stuff, there was definitely a fight. (laughs) And almost every instance, even though it was a different version of a fight with different characters, it was basically a fight, you know? So I just wonder if... I don't know, like something like He-Man or something like She-Ra is ever going to move away from that idea or it's always going to represent to young children like these people are the fighting people. These people are the ones that have weddings and go shopping. We know, of course, that like 
artifacts and objects, you know, have mm-hmm. certain affordances and 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 those those are often kind of cultural. So we see is you know, we see an artifact and we sort of think that we're supposed to act with it in a certain way or or mm-hmm. do certain kinds of things with it. So we, we we kind of create spaces for kids, right? And we in those spaces that we create, like I said, those artifacts kind of communicate a certain set of things. And so, yeah. which spaces mm-hmm. do we want to create? Do we want to create spaces that, um, you know, take uh, uh, gender extremes and and put those front and center, uh, or do we want to in either direction? Like you were talking about with yeah. the experience that you were you were discussing, and do we want to sort of kind of create? systems or spaces uh, or media that allows people to have multiple possible ways they might move through it or use mm-hmm. it or interpret it. Yeah. Um, yeah, right, right. And I guess maybe you can't rely on one thing to shift the whole conversation, right? It's got to be like accumulated, right, in a lot of different examples. So if there's only like one show like He-Man where we're, act- we're going to tell people that we're doing spoilers, right? okay like where he man dies the first episode right (laughs) like um then you know and then like it reshifts and focuses on the women characters and then there's like a different kind of woman character maybe kids just need to see like multiple ones of that and maybe the cynicism in me is like it's never gonna change but maybe it's got to be multiple stories on top of each other that kind of changes the narrative or the discourse right like i'm thinking like i've said this so many times but like there's this author, Viet Thanh Nguyen, and basically he talks about this idea of like narrative plenitude. Right. And how, like, it's not just that you have this different story that you've never seen before about like an Asian person or a black person or somebody who's genderqueer or whatever, but that you have to have a lot of them, right? Because then you see that these stories are complex and there's like a lot of multiple ways that you can move through the world. Um, and maybe that's like the beginning of it, you know, is the idea that we have to have all these like stories on top of each other and not just one story that represents like, here's a different thing right, because that's right. not going to shift the time, right? It's <laughs> right. going to shift the discourse. So. And we did the one so we can now, you know, dust our hands off, pat ourselves on the back. and Yeah. 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 And maybe it's an opening. It's an opening, right? For different kinds of stories. Yeah. Thank you for, for watching the uh, Masters of the Universe Revelation with me. I, I hope you watch the rest of it, but if you don't, that's um, understandable. I know you have a lot of things to do, but I'm curious, what's your, what's your take on this? What's, is, is, this uh, is this show popping or not? Ooh, I don't know. You go first. Let me think about it. <laughs> oh, it's definitely... It's obviously popping to you. It's definitely popping for me. Oh, my goodness. Totally. I, so, like I said, I, I actually was not planning on watching it until a friend texted me, yell, you know, yelling in his text message, oh my god, you have to watch it right away. So I did watch it, and I did thoroughly enjoy it. Um, I, I enjoyed, I thought the the sort of different take on the, on the characters and elevating the side characters and having them kind of go through interesting challenges was fun. It was, it was something new for the show to do, which I really appreciated. Um, I don't have a solid conclusion yet whether it's pop or nap i'm just gonna go with panop panop <laughs> <laughs> perhaps it could be popping it could be nap <laughs> not sure yet so i uh, jury's still out on it but i will watch some more just to see 
So Anne Dyson, thank you so much for joining me and Nathan. We just um, are grateful that you're here with us to talk about, you know, superheroes, um, <laughs> gender, just like a lot of the things that we're all interested in collectively around childhoods. Um, and so we wanted to have this conversation with you because you're the, you know, you've been doing research for a really long time with young children. And, um, and I personally learned a lot just about paying attention to popular culture, paying attention to children's play. And I think that's kind of what has brought me to Pop and Play, our podcast, yeah. is just this you know, intersection of play and pop culture and what that means for kids, but then what that means for me too. So <laughs> thanks for coming. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what kinds of things have you encountered lately that's sort of like reminding you of childhood, right? Like things that um, are kind of like these time capsules or artifacts that are kind of returning. It's, it's an interesting question to ask about like these time capsules for us because so much of the things that were kind of at the center of Haney and I's childhood are being rebooted and remade and, and, you know, put into different kind of formats and different forms. And, and um, so like this, this nostalgia is just like, I don't even always want to be nostalgic, but you kind of can't escape it. It's kind of constantly on us. That's true. And people have written about that. I remember when I was working on a, a book that's called Writing Superheroes, uh, that I read a lot of the um, increasing literature from cultural studies. And I remember reading this piece, and I, if anybody was interested, I could I could find it. But it was about Spider-Man, and it was about how each generation since Spider-Man began thought their Spider-Man was the best. And there <laughs> yeah. was all of this emotion and identity <clears throat> and tied to childhood uh, conveyed through or mediated yeah. through the version of Spider-Man that they knew. Wow. And it was just incredibly interesting yeah. to, to me that I hadn't thought about, well, I was coming to think about those things because my entry into popular culture and all these issues was because from the very beginning, the children's writing was full of the stuff, just full of it. And I needed a connection with the kids. And in the early years of teaching, they were all primary. I taught in um, bilingual schools. They were all, uh, did I say they were, they were all kids of color. And I needed a cultural connection. I had a low-income childhood myself. So at any rate, I needed a connection. And it was obvious to me. One clear connection was Charlie Brown. And there's one that comes back all the time. Charlie Brown has never, I don't think, gone away. If I say that to kids now, they know who Charlie Brown is. I don't know what's happened in terms of kids who can't afford all these streaming services. Mm. I think there may be new kinds of class related distinctions because so much is now used to be available to the public is now through all these private sources 
it makes a difference. Mm. I mean, I think those are two really, I think you brought up two really big points, right? And one is about representation, like along generations, but then I think the other part of it, access, right? And accessibility, I think is such a big one too. And I do want to return to the access part, but can I return to the representation part? Because I love the example that you gave of Spider-Man, where every generation thinks their Spider-Man is better. And I also feel like along the way, like there's been like upgrades to Spider-Man, but then there's also been attention to representation, right? In those same characters, right? And sometimes people don't like that, right? Like they don't want to see a Dominican Spider-Man. In the last few years, if you asked like media makers, I think they would say that they tried to address that um, by increased gender representation or increased racial representation, right? I think there's moves to do that. But I wonder, what do you think about that? Like, do you think that that is creating opportunities for young people to imagine different possibilities for themselves or feel like they could take up different roles? Or is that not enough? I don't know. I'm just thinking about like things like Ghostbusters, right? Where it was just an all-male cast and then it got remade and it was all females, right? And maybe that, you know, that was a very intentional move. And do, do those, do, does media, as they increase their representation, it, does that flow into children's play? Or is there something more that we should be thinking about? I think that's a, that's a, a really good question. And I think representation is important to little kids. I remember in a very early project, um, the kids were supposed to pick a book out of a lot out of the school library to do some project with. And this group of black girls searched all over. They couldn't find anything. And then one of them said, let's do an animal. (laughs) Forget the people books, just find some animal. You know, that it was important to them. I think that that is important. I want to say this before I address your question. Or these people who Thanksgiving is only about the pilgrims <laughs> and the helpful Indians. They all got along so nicely. And I remember um, it was a really good teacher, but this teacher went through the whole the usual pilgrimy thing. She started asking the kids what they were going to do to celebrate Thanksgiving. And this one child who was an indigenous American said, I'm going to go to the library so I can learn about my people. He was six. Mm. And in another classroom, a little black girl said after that same story, what about the black people were here? And the teacher said, oh, no, they, they, they hadn't come yet. And then look what we have now, the 1619 Project. Mm. They actually were here, Mm. Uh, but nobody knew. Mm. So I think that building on the fact that representation is important, but nonetheless, it depends how in the face of the kids it is and if it's somebody they can identify with. And I think that's one worry about what, kind of media is accessible to white kids. If there were black stars they knew and they were in 
a form that appeals to kids. I remember the first time I became aware of that was when Space Jam came out. <laughs> I mean, wow, we, there's Michael Jordan and, you know, they knew who Michael Jordan was. And I, I, I watched Be like that. Mike. Yeah, be <laughs> like Mike. And yeah. they, well, the, the Tweety Bird and all those folks. Yeah, right. <laughs> there. And that was, I mean, they watched it so many times. That one little girl said to her teacher, we've been really good. Why don't we all watch Space Jam on Friday? The teacher, <laughs> whom I love dearly, said, good, good idea. Well, now there's a reboot. There's a reboot of Space Jam. I know, I was going to say, there's mm-hmm. another reboot of that, yeah. You know, we've had a, we had a recent example of this, though, um, in the, the Black Panther movie that came out a few years ago now. Um, <clears throat> this was a, you know, it was a massive phenomenon. It was, it, it, it was huge. And, and living in New York, you know, it was, it was this really kind of, I think, important experience for me. And certainly, I think, also perhaps for my kids, where we lived next to Harlem. And, and um, you know, the movie theaters were just cram-packed. For, for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And a lot of the public schools, my kids' public school, which is also in Harlem included, they, you know, they had movie nights where they were taking all the kids to go see the Black Panther movie. Um, there, it really was this kind of cultural phenomenon where people were sort of saying like, that's us, that's us on screen. And, and it was so well done, I think that they also didn't feel like it was a pander. They felt like they actually were being represented in a real way. I thought, I thought that was a good movie. Yeah. But it's interesting, though, because that's an interesting contrast between that um, and, you know, this He-Man uh, episode we watched. One of the things I think that, you know, Haney brought up in our conversation we had earlier about this was that the the key thing here is that that Tila, the, the sort of female character of the He-Man show, becomes the, the main character of the episode arc that we watched. And there was an aspect of that that was actually, I, I found really enjoyable, and I found like it really kind of pushed on some issues that I've always had with He-Man. Um, but also there's a, a bit of a ham-fistedness to it, right? Of like, no, seriously, we're going to care about gender this time. We're not going to be so bad about this like we were in the 80s. We're really going to try hard. And so then it comes across a little bit overtly like like they're trying to, you know, I think Haney put it, like they're trying to tell teach us a lesson, right? Um, and I'm wondering, I mean, if you have any thoughts about that, that sort of tension between this need to and, and very important um, steps that we take to start creating opportunities for more kinds of representations, as well as this this danger of being so overt that we're kind of like, it's like we, we can't fake out the kids, right? Like they know what's going on here. Um, but that line seems important. It, it does. I want to back up just a minute and make sure that I was clear that I think representation matters to kids, but I think it has to be in terms that are important to the kids' world now. I'm thinking when Obama was elected, that that was a very big deal to the kids, but I didn't hear any, and I can be presidents out of that. Huh. What I heard was that they, they were very interested in their children. They knew all the kids' names. They knew the dog's name. <laughs> they knew they knew that there was a black man in the and a black family in the White House. And that mattered to them, but it mattered to them in kids' terms. Mm. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Well, that's just making me think of how um, we think that because we fixed the representation part, like we as a society, that that um, 
that'll fix it when we have all these structural issues, right, that you're alluding to, right, that it's not because they saw more representations of themselves that we fix the problem of racism, because I think a lot of times, like, fixing representation is a lot easier than fixing actual racism, right? right? Yes, I think that's what I was trying to say and if we look what we're doing now we don't listen to kids Mm -hmm. these people who are making these laws they know nothing about children Mm -hmm. feel sorry for their own kids they must not listen to them or they have them segregated yeah right yeah i mean if i are like talking about gender in particular and about how there's increased possibilities for females i guess in these in these media productions, but then at the same time, we have all these issues with gender right now, right? And gender freedom and sexuality and children's identities, right, that are happening right now that are not consistent with the fact that there's increased gender representation or fluidity on screen. Yes, I I agree with that. I think uh, an example that reveals the uh, what I think of as the white supremacy at the root of all these movements against inclusiveness in school. Right. I mean, they say they're worried about making kids uncomfortable. Well, they're certainly not worried about uh, the kids I mentioned who mm-hmm. don't see themselves represented or who wonder why am I being left out of the story. They don't give a crap about that. Pardon mm-hmm. me. You can edit that out, that little crap. <laughs> But, um, oh, I know. What I think is a good example of what Haney is talking about is that in most every classroom I've been in for years, there's usually one or two kids who have two moms or two dads. But they don't want sexuality or anything about gayness in the schools. But if they do that, what do they do when these kids are asked to draw a picture of their family? Mm-hmm. What what? What are you doing here? Mm-hmm. We're not supposed to do that. Mm-hmm. Exclude kids. Th- these rules make no sense. It's a contradiction mm-hmm. that we don't want kids uncomfortable because of who they are. But mm-hmm. you're making kids uncomfortable. It feels like that conversation that's happening out there around uh, around schools and in the kind of uh, uh, ugliest places of our of our politics right now, it, it does seem divorced from from what people experience. It also seems divorced from um, what what kids and uh, are capable of. Um, like you said, I mean they they have those they've have those difficult conversations whether or not um, you know a, a, <laughs> a teacher holds up a book that says critical race theory on it or not. Yeah, and then the teacher doesn't get to um, mediate it. The school leaves the kids on their own to deal with things that adult generation haven't dealt with well. <laughs> right. And right. Well, now we're going to let these kids make some sense of it. Mm-hmm. But you can see what because I usually think media offers, and then if it's appropriated by some public, it becomes popular culture, at least an everyday meaning-making thing for them. And you can see what it is that's captured their attention uh, if they're allowed to play. If you watch the kids play out in the playground or if they're allowed to play like through, if writing is a form of graphic graphic play, Mm -hmm. then you figure out 
what interests them, what what do they gravitate towards. Definitely, mm -hmm. they like things where kids have agency and power. Mm -hmm. They're not so into the adults. They're interested in the kids. I think that's what I was saying when I was talking about Obama. That's what I was trying to say. Mm, they were yeah. into the things they identified with as kids, but if it matched their identities, then it is partly because of representation, but it's also accessible representation to them as kids and they're into play. So that tells us you have to pay attention to what they're paying attention to. Yeah. So I think it's like that. I think this is great because this brings us to the last segment of our podcast, which is <laughs> what's popping. And I feel like that intersection, I mean, that's the thing that we wanted to yeah. emphasize right through our podcast. It's like the intersection of pop culture and play can be a yeah. really productive space, right? And we see that in young children's writing. We see that in Nathan's work and like the idea of making and like how children like or young people just tinker, right? And make things and design things and imagine like, different possibilities, you know? So I think that intersection is a really interesting thing. So, Anne, at the end of our show, we like to ask people the question, what's poppin'? And basically that just means like something that you're listening to on the radio, it could be, or a podcast that you're really enjoying or a book that you just recently picked up that you want to talk about, a TV show that has been like grabbing your attention. And so Maybe each of us can just talk about what's popping in our lives right now. <laughs> Nathan, you want to go first? I have a couple. I have a couple things, but I'll, I'll mention um, one that's really connected to what you just said, um, and that was, and that is that my my daughter's play is popping, and and it's popping in a way that's very connected to this idea of trying on these different um, these different representations through play. Um, taking on these different roles and trying to fit them into you know your interests. My daughter uh, did two things today that are directly connected to this. One was we were at the playground and there was this kind of like um, uh, balance beam kind of thing that's intentionally wobbly and kind of tricky. And she got up on it and she you know needs some help initially. And then I said no, you got to do it yourself. And so she kind of did it. And then she kept getting faster and faster. And she she started saying that she was a ninja while she was doing it. And so then she would say ninja pose and she sort of jump off and do like ninja moves. And she's never seen like a ninja show or a movie that I know of, but yet she had this, you know, from conversations with kids probably and things. She sort of probably playing ninjas. Exactly. She's connected to this idea of a ninja. And then and then right before our meeting today, we were we were talking and, and my daughter walked in and she was fully geared up in um, uh, a night outfit that she had made from paper. Uh, it was because impressive. She, like helmet, <laughs> shield, sword. And she said um, she was a knight, and she was a knight because she needed to protect us from the lady with snake hair. Again, like, she's sort of taking on these, and, and all the roles she's taking on is this sort of warrior role, <laughs> and one of protector, one with grace. Uh, and it's fantastic, right? It's, I love it. So that's popping. Okay. And do you want to tell us what's popping? Well, I uh, can't find the exact book. Uh, and I don't know for sure that it's related, but I think it is. It's a book called Palaces for the People. Has anybody heard of that book? It's about uh, what kind of spaces are left for the public. But as the book goes on, it starts talking about these spaces that are created for play 
and linked to popular culture. And one of them are these programs, like there's one in Chicago uh, after school program where the kids can come in and write their music. And uh, they're certainly inspired by what's going on uh, in their world in terms of music. And there's all this equipment so they can actually do demo tapes and you you media right huh it's called you media yeah you know that program yeah yeah very well yeah it's a it's a fantastic program yeah yeah so that's the kind of thing he talks about that there are so few public places left so we we need to help create them and if the schools the schools unfortunately um are so under so many regulations that it may be that we will need to uh, support also these out-of-school programs, but I will never give up on schools themselves. I will never give up. No, not till I'm dead and gone, and then I'll be shouting from the wherever I am. <laughs> <laughs> but still, I think we can take inspiration, whether mm -hmm. it's in the classroom or out. Uh-huh. Um, okay, so I'm going to end by telling you what's popping for me. I'm going to say magazines because I subscribe to this magazine called The Believer. And basically, basically, it's like a hodgepodge of like different things. Like there's artwork in it. Sometimes people submit poetry. Sometimes there's essays. Um, it's just a really cool, creative like outlet. Um, and it just, it's called The, the Believer. Yes. And I feel like they published their last print print volume like recently and it's so sad because I'm like I just always loved magazines growing up um and I won't tell you what kind of magazines I liked but not like professional sophisticated ones but now I'm like this magazine is so great and I feel like it's such a great creative space so now is that every meeting that I am in with Nathan, I try to convince him that we have to write a magazine or put that's out true. a magazine because that's, that's like the thing I'm obsessed with. So that's what's popping for me. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Anne. This was so fun. Um, yeah, thank thanks, you for being Anne. so generous with your time. Thanks for asking me. It was so fun to talk it to was. you. It was. It was, a, it was a delight to meet you, and it was super fun to talk to you. So thanks for joining us today. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Pop and Play is produced by Haney Yoon, Nathan Holbert, Lalitha Vasudevan, and Joe Rena Ferry at Teachers College, Columbia University with the Digital Futures Institute. This episode was edited by Jen Lee, Billy Collins, and Lucius Fangio. For a transcript and to learn more, visit tc.edu slash popandplay. This episode was assistant produced by Lucius Vanjo. Our music is selections from Leaf Eater by Poddington Bear, used here under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial license. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.